Hello, and welcome to Star Trek Sundays, Season 2, Episode 2. Today's episode is Say What? The Evolution of Language, in which we'll discuss language and communication as presented and contemplated through Star Trek. If you're new here, I'm Victoria, and with me is my co-host, T. Star Trek Sundays is a podcast through which we and our guest crew examine the philosophical themes presented in Star Trek every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. Our goal is not to come to conclusions on the themes we discuss, but to spark contemplation and conversation, which we hope continues after the live recording and into the lives of the listeners of the podcast. At the top of the room, we've pinned our Star Trek Sundays website, StarTrekSundays.com. There you'll find links to our published podcasts, my captain's log and guest blogs, links to our upcoming watch lists, and our Star Trek Sundays trading post. The Star Trek Sundays podcast is available one week after the live show on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and from anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing to our channels as it helps us reach others who might enjoy the show. T. Thank you for curating a great duo of episodes for this topic. I was really touched by the first one, Darmok, and I'm looking forward to hearing what the crew has to say. But first, can you tell me your general thoughts about how Star Trek addressed the topic of language and then tell us how you came to curate the episodes we watched this week? Absolutely, Victoria, and thank you. The study of language is a multidisciplinary field that encompasses the study of communication, culture, cognitive psychology, and philosophy. The evolution of language is a particularly fascinating topic as it sheds light on the development of human cognition and society. Understanding the evolution of language can help us to understand how human societies have developed over time and how we use language to communicate, think, and understand the world around us. Star Trek, as a science fiction series, presents an interesting lens through which to explore the evolution of language. The series depicts a future where humanity has evolved in many ways, including their use of language. The Star Trek universe provides a thought-provoking and imaginative perspective on the evolution and how it shapes the future of humanity. So in this introduction, we're going to be just looking at these different episodes and inviting the reader to explore the philosophical implications of the evolution and how Star Trek addresses this topic. The series provides insight into how language may evolve in the future and how it might shape human communication culture society and everything else about our lives so i chose these episodes because they are in my opinion a critical lens into the evolution of language and in more than one episode i found myself going say what right yeah <laughs> exactly exactly well, thank you for that. Uh, that was a great introduction. Uh, let's start with Darmok. Uh, we have a lot to say. I'm sure a lot of the um, uh, crew will have a lot to say as well. Can you provide a summary of the episode to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about? And then I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, one of my absolute favorites of all time from The Next Generation, Darmok, Next Generation, Season 5, Episode 2, first aired on the 30th of September, 1991. So 
in Darmok, the crew of the USS Enterprise encounters an alien species called the Temerians, who speak in a language that is based on metaphors, making it impossible for the crew to understand what it is that they're saying. Through the struggles of their communication, the crew learns about the evolution of the Temerian language and its importance to their culture. I chose this episode because it explores the ideas that language is not just a tool for communication, but also shapes one's perception of the world and understanding of oneself. Thank you, T. This was such a beautiful episode. I really felt myself being carried along with Picard's emotions of curiosity, apprehension, achievement, and ultimately uh, achievement and ultimately sadness. And the story was very rich. And I think I'll be watching this again soon to really absorb it all. And I, I now really understand why you and Steve in particular have talked about this so much in so many different rooms. So my question then is, in Darmok, all the language references were metaphorical. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? Oh, I, I have to fall back on some of the classics like, you know, Monty Python, in which I, you know, say something um, like, you know, did you get it in? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Say, know what I mean, know what I mean, say no more, say no more, in which I'm, you know, adding some double entendre to, uh, to you know, something I said, some sexual innuendo or some, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm probably not saying anything that's actually sexual, but then I'm saying, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, in order to make it as if I'm saying something sexual. So I find myself doing that a lot. I think that's one of the really popular ones that I just, I, I crack up every time I hear it. So. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because I know the reference, but I didn't know from where it came, but I, I, that is part of our language. I've seen people do it. I think I've even done the first bit of it myself. And, um, and yet I didn't know that it came from Monty Python. And I think that's part of what, we can explore today too, is how these things get into our language. As you've said, nobody just decides that we're going to start saying these things. It becomes part of it because people have either enjoyed it or, you know, it just, I don't know. It's like it seeps into the language. Well, I so, think there's, there's definitely been a lot of study with regards to this. Um, I think uh, Dawkins co uh, coined the term of the meme, which is the smallest unit of reproducible speech that sort of infects the mind and then gets reproduced through the speech in another way that in turn infects something else. And yeah, I, I think the point that I was making about um, how language evolves and especially in, you know, in, in our culture, I think is a great example of how language evolves um, is through the use of, of cultural references. Like we didn't used to, um, we didn't used to say that I'd Google it, and now I do say that. And that's not because there's some guy at Webster who's sitting around going, well, I'm just going to add a new word to the dictionary. Like, now I'm going to say Google, and that means this. It's quite the opposite. 
the dictionaries tend to, or are they do specifically, track our usage of the language and how it evolves over time. Um, and so the, the dictionary is sort of the last thing to get updated, right? Um, to sort of, you know, solidify the fact that, yeah, the language has in fact evolved and now it's time to sort of update our, our reference material on this, you know? So yeah, it's, it's not the case where we're sitting around going, you know, let's evolve the language. It's the case where the language is evolving under our feet, even as we walk upon its ground. Right. Yeah, right on. Yeah, it, really good point about the dictionary as well. I watch 8 out of 10 Cats does Countdown, and they have a, a, a dictionary corner where they discuss whether the words that they pick are actual words. And quite often, the contestants come up with words that I know are words. I use those words, the contestant uses the words, but uh, Dictionary Corner says, no, it's not in, it's not in the dictionary. And then she'll often say, uh, Susie is the Dictionary Corner um, woman, uh, she'll often say, you just have to use it more. And that's exactly how things get in the dictionary is just how, how much it's used. And uh, I think that's really funny. Uh, thank you for that, T. Uh, Charlotte, I'm dying to know. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? Well, um, this takes me back to over 30 years ago, or about 30 years ago, when uh, Marianne and I, my wife, uh, first got together. And um, I was over at her parents' house um, helping stain a brand new deck that they had constructed in, in the back patio. And her, uh, her father and I were working on this, and it was a hot day, and we were sweaty, and it took about, oh, about five hours. We got done, and Marianne's mom was making dinner. And I went inside to use the restroom, and as I was leaving, her father was there, and Marianne's, Marianne's Filipina, and um, her, her father was speaking Tagalog to me. And he, he was rattling off, and I hadn't been in the family long enough to learn enough to understand what he was talking about. But as he was speaking, he was, he was saying, oh, like with this really disgusted look on his face, he's, oh, kili, kili power. And, and I said, okay, okay, so what tool do we use to get this kili, kili power? And, and he's laughing. And he kept speaking Tagalog, which he often does. And, and so I, I went to Marianne and I said, can you help me? I said, your father's attempting to communicate with me something. And he's pointing to the bathroom, his armpits, and he's saying, kili, kili, power. And, and, and she said, dad, what? And Gustamang uh, asking him what he's saying. And so he says it to her and she starts laughing. And he's saying, um, um, if you're going to use the bathroom, use it now. I have to get in there because bajo, which means stink, and pointing to his armpits, I have keely keely power. Keely keely power means that my armpits <laughs> stink. <laughs> Beware of the <laughs> odor. <laughs> and we sat and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. That has become, Keely Keely Power has become one of those things that still makes me giggle to this day. 
and a part of our language of Baho, Kili Kili Power. And I learned a great deal of Tagalog that day from that incident. So that's my share. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I love the the phrase Kili Kili Power. Like it <laughs> it, it it's it well it, it it flows quite nicely. And and as you were telling the story, I thought, oh, I need to tell my husband that. I want to adopt that. <laughs> Like, <laughs> but but yeah. more like you know uh, do you need to go to the bathroom because you better go now because i'm going to take some time <laughs> when i go in there and so kind you know, to apologize whatever this warning right to apologize for what i might walk into you know <laughs> in the hallway that he's you know that he's there and apologizing that you know, I might experience something offensive in some way. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> that, that there was a lot of experiences that, that I've had with my wife and learning about her culture and connecting with her family. And, and I'm grateful that I'm blessed with a family that has, has been so generous in teaching me. And um, over 30 years, I've learned a great deal. So it's, 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 it's really, in, you know, it's so, so important in connection with new families, you know, to, to learn about our cultures together. And, and that's something that I got from the connection of, of, of what I uh, witnessed in the show in watching the show yesterday. So. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. Gela, welcome to the stage. Ryan, welcome to the stage. Gela. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? And what did you think of this episode? You watched it with us yesterday as well. So um, I have an older sister, which means that we have a lot of sort of inside jokes and references. And the one that I'm thinking about and that always makes me giggle is um, one time... Um, must have been like 10 or 15 years ago, we were at my father's house and we were trying to find something. We we're trying to find a box of something. And my sister picked up a box and said, oh, here it is. Oh no, this is an empty box. And my dad said, what's an empty box? And she said, it's a box that doesn't have anything in it. He's like, no, how do you know it's empty? She's like, cause there's nothing in it. I said, what's not in it? And she said, anything. So sometimes when uh, when in our family there's some kind of miscommunication, my sister and I will look at each other and say, "What's an empty box?" And that's our that's our. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um. And you know, like T and Steve, this is one of my absolute favorite episodes. I remember watching it when I was a kid, and it was just there's something really profound about the way that narrative is used in this episode, the way that it, it exposes the importance of cultural narrative in, in communication. And while we don't, while in our culture, we don't have these um, very obvious, you know, our whole language isn't, isn't made of metaphors, but it's an extreme example of something that we do have in our culture, in our linguistic culture. You know, we make references here in America to, you know, American mythology, we biblical references, um, you know, all sorts of all sorts of things that we use just on an everyday basis without even realizing it. Um, and uh, it's just 
it's just a wonderful and fascinating and and profound episode. I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Gela, because um, as a writer, this is something that we that that we study. They're called tropes, and a trope is sort of like a cliche in that it's something that you can reasonably expect the you know the the reader or the the watcher or whatever it is to to know um and when you invoke it what you're doing is you're using a shorthand for communication um for example when you say romeo and juliet and this is you know the example on the that was given in the episode uh romeo and juliet on the balcony and this is you know in the style of the Sumerian language um you're actually communicating a lot you don't have to tell anyone what's going on here that there's two warring families that and you know star-crossed lovers and that they're going to die at the end and then uh, so then when you say that to someone and then the um when the lovers don't die at the end, this is a subversion of expectation. Because what you've done is you've communicated something to the audience that, you know, these people are star-crossed lovers who are going to die at the end, and then they don't. And so setting up that subversion of expectation is important. And you want to be able to use that shorthand as a writer without sitting there and telling the whole story of Juliet, Romeo and Juliet. And so uh, it's one of those things where the more tropes you know as a writer the better off you're going to be as a writer because you can use more shorthand but you have to be careful because tropes are cultural so in korean films when you leave the bowl of food out and then the girl comes at night everybody in korea knows that you why you don't leave the bowl of food out and this is a you know not you know exactly what's going to happen we don't have to tell you why the girl is coming but as an american if you go to watch this korean movie you're going to be scratching your head a little bit as to sort of like you know the backstory here on this girl and why leaving a bowl of food out at night is you know unusual because you don't have that trope and so as a writer you want to be conscious of what tropes you're invoking and what tropes your audience has and then you know intentionally do things like subvert the trope subvert that expectation of the audience because that's how we use language to you know to to tell a story and make the story interesting and exciting yeah, great advice, T. Absolutely. I I don't know what that Korean reference is. So yeah, I, I would be scratching my head for sure. Um, so that that's interesting. And it, it that goes to to speak to your audience too. If you're speaking to a Korean audience, that's great. But if you're trying to um, speak to some a group of people who wouldn't know that, then that it wouldn't land the same way. For sure. Thank you for that. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the stage. And and then we have Barsha and Babs as well. Ryan, um, what is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? I don't know if I have one. I mean, for me, growing up interracial and uh, Mexican-American, there is a fusion of language that happens, especially in Southern California, Los Angeles, all the way down to like Ensenada where American words get adopted into Spanish 
and you know in mexico they're called pochismos they're like you're using english in a spanish context and so growing up especially in ensenada tijuana area or san diego it really was common for me to hear other latinos say um pon esto en la troca like go put this in the trunk or or oye wey guachate like hey look out like watch yourself where there's american lingo that then becomes mexican lingo uh in this in this fusion and growing up you know if you spoke like that in mexico you were looked down upon and if you spoke like that in the us you were also looked down upon but there's literally multiple generations of people you know born in california that grew up speaking this this hybrid language and uh, it's beautiful in the sense that language is not fixed and meaning changes yeah i mean this this episode is amazing for so many reasons and the 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 more you watch it the mo the more beautiful and tragic the action of the characters become Thank you for that. I, you participated in the uh, watch party yesterday, and and I really appreciated it because um, I thought this was beautiful as well. And when you pointed out the scene at the beginning, where the captain of the Temerians was telling his first officer what he was going to do, using the reference and it, and as a, a new viewer to it we wouldn't know what that reference meant, but the first officer knew. And um, when you pointed that out, it, it just, it really, I, I felt something in my chest, you know? So yeah, I, I mean, really appreciated you, that. you see the sacrifice of the captain and, and the sort of anguish that his crew right away uh, starts showing because they know, they know this gambit. You know, the captain is saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to sacri potentially sacrifice myself so that we can communicate because this is the only way to do it. Um, and it adds a weight to the captain of the other ship uh, where, I mean, it's, it's nobility at its best. It's self-sacrifice literally for, for a cause that's so grand and and huge that it could potentially save thousands, if not millions. And we don't think about it in those terms when we think about language, but here on earth, you know, there's, there's plenty of situations where let's say us military people are overseas in a Arab country, a Muslim country where there's different lexicon, there's different cultural iconography and, uh, you know, flashing your, your open palm to somebody means something different over there than it does over here. And so there are these miscommunications that do lead to violence in situations that if the context had been known, everyone would be safe. But because of an ignorance of, of, of cultural reference, everyone is in danger. And uh, it's something that we navigate every day. We just don't think about it. And thank you for that, because part of language, we're using speech here, the references that we're using today, uh, but body language is a big part of language and communication as well. So thank you for that. Um, welcome, Barsha. I'll put the question to you and, and then uh, you can let us know what you thought about the episode generally. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? 
Thank you. Unfortunately, it has something to do with some something somebody ascribed to my behavior. Okay. So <laughs> when I was, I have kind of a bombastic New York style and I was in a very rural kind of a place where I was looking at a incredible mill where they mill logs and do stuff. And then they had a little gift store uh, where you could buy souvenirs. And <laughs> I was up in this rural Catskill town and I bombastically came in and go, I'll take this, this, that, and give me five pencils and this, that. And the woman went into some hyperdrive and she went, pencils, pencils. So my, my wife always says to me now, when I do that to somebody in life, she goes, did you pencil that person? Come on, you penciled it, didn't you? <laughs> so it's because of something that happened to us that now it's a verb and you know, it's anyway that, so we always say that if I'm being too bombastic and interrupting, I should go stop penciling. Do not pencil that person. Anyway, that's something no one would understand. I don't even know if that qualifies under, under this. Absolutely. And, and what did you think about the episode generally? Darmok? I, I loved it. I know, as we talked a little bit afterwards yesterday, I thought it was so great. I mean, just the concept, it forces you to be sentient, to acknowledge your sentience as a human being, I think, because you're just sitting there and you're, he's trying to understand and he has to do it other than the ways that he's been used to understanding anything. And when she looks it up and she cross-references it, that's my favorite, like they find out it's from the same planet or whatever. And then, you know, like Ryan was just saying, cultural references and other people where Geller was talking about too, you have to open yourself up to other ways of thinking. And at any stage of your life, at any time, it's always good to do that. It's such a great lesson about being human and feeling, you know, that's what I liked about it. Thanks. That's great. Marcus, welcome to Star Trek Sundays and uh, to the crew. Let's move to you. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? Yeah, thank you for inviting me on, um, Victoria. Um, I haven't watched this episode of Star Trek, unfortunately, so I'll have to pass that bit. But here in the UK, if you visit the UK and somebody um, comes to you and says, uh, you have egg on your chin, don't worry, you don't actually have egg on your chin. It just means that your fly is open and you might want to zip that up. Oh, that's great. So do you know where that comes from? So I think it's like an, a, a Liverpudlian saying. Um, it's very similar to you have an egg on your face and, you know, which it means like you're, you look foolish. Okay, so I think like the chin is lower on the face maybe. So, you know, we're thinking lower down. It's like you're looking a bit foolish because your fly is open. Oh, that's great. Oh, maybe we'll, we'll learn some new things from around the world here today. Uh, great. Thank you for that, Marcus. Um, welcome to Star Trek Sundays, Raphael. I'll put this question to you, and I, I believe that you're also a Star Trek fan. So while you didn't watch with us yesterday, um, I'm going to guess you know this um, episode. But first, what is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? Okay, yeah, Darmok is by far my favorite episode. I mean, I think it, it's, it, 
it encapsulates perfectly the idea of new life and new civilizations, the idea a new language, and because new life and new civilizations doesn't mean a different color paint on a person's face or a different kind of you know appendage on their nose, but it means like really thinking out of the box. And Darmok was the perfect expression of that kind of Star Trek uh, thinking. And it reminds me of a close friend of mine who is not a Star Trek fan and never saw that episode. But when I was describing the episode to him, he gave me a turn of phrase that I had never heard before, but which encapsulated the purpose of Darmok. He said, all language is dead metaphor, which I thought was a brilliant line, which is that all of us, without realizing it, are speaking in metaphors all the time. But because we're so familiar with the metaphors, just like Darmok and Jalad and Tanagra and all of that, that's how we speak. So I think of uh, two in particular, which are actually, I think, both from the same book of the Bible, the book of Daniel, where, you know, well-known expression of into the lion's den. And uh, he, someone saw the writing on the wall. I think in the past two weeks alone, I've heard people use the expression, they saw the writing on the wall maybe half a dozen times. And the people weren't even that well versed in anything having to do with the Bible. It was just such a familiar phrase. So people don't even know where it's based, but they just use the expression. And imagine if something like that had happened, like in the Darmok episode, and Picard would, you know, have said, you know, as the animal was peering, you know, that they saw the writing on the wall, his companion would have been just as confused as Picard was by all of the discussions, you know, that whole night. Anyway, wonderful episode. I'm glad to hear you all talk about it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Raphael. That's uh, that's great. And you know what? I've used that uh, that phrase before and had no idea where it came from. So thank you for that bit of information for me today. Uh, we'll move on to James. But before that, T, did you have any uh, thoughts at this point before we continue with the stage? Yeah, I love the I love the writing on the wall reference. Um, there's definitely I, I think that that's something that in the past, you know, girlfriends and I have communicated with is, um, is just, you know, song lyrics and things like that. And I'm sort of reminded of, um, uh, like some of Rush because that has a lot of that type of imagery and, um, thinking sort of embedded in the lyrics that, you know, the writing on the wall and that, that type of idea is just something that they really, you know, delve deep into. And I think it's something that, you know, people who love that type of music, they, they use that type of language to communicate with each other. I think it's a really common thing. Yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah, music for sure. Absolutely. So James, welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Uh, I'll put it to you. I don't know if you know the episode, but you certainly don't need to know the episode to answer the question. What is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? It's not how you get in the rough, it's how you get out of the rough. Is that a golf reference? Uh, it's, it's Yes, it is. And it's used as a metaphor in life. And I've, <clears throat> I've used the same thing in cycling. In competitive cycling, uh, there comes a point in a race where there could be a crosswind. So if you <clears throat> echelon across the road, you can pinch people off out of the draft by putting them in the... Uh, proverbial gutter taking it to the edge of the road 
where no one can get a draft except for those that you want to keep in your group. And you can put someone in the gutter and then there's more suffering in the gutter because you're not getting a good draft. Um, it's the same analogy as getting in the rough. It sucks when you're in the rough, but it's not, not how you got in there. It's how you get out of it. So it's, yeah. And I love the reference to Rush, writing on the wall. I love Rush. Rush is a great, great uh, musical band. Right. And and are you familiar with Darmok, the, the episode of Star Trek uh, at all? I'll be honest. No, I don't watch Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> that, and that's perfectly fine because we... Um, we ask questions that everybody can answer and I appreciate your contribution. I just thought I'd invite you to tell us what you thought about the episode if um, if you were interested. So that's great. Stick around because I have another uh, question about language in a little bit that you'll probably be able to answer as well. Steve, welcome to the stage. Thankfully, we're finally here. We're talking about Darmok. I've heard you talk about Darmok for months. D I didn't know the references. I knew what was going on, but not Oh, not nearly as much as I know now. So I was really looking forward to talking to you about this. So I'll ask you the question first, and then I really want to hear about what you think about the, the episode. So Steve, what is your favorite metaphor or clever twist of speech that says something without actually saying it? Thank you for that. I have a very personal example for me and my closest friends where we we uh, all happened to love this episode of a TV series called um, uh, it was it it's called Coupling. It's a UK uh, sitcom kind of a, kind of like a UK friends type of show, but it's a little more hysterical and funny. And uh, this one episode there's uh, a communication error, in fact, which ties into our theme, where um, one of the main characters, his name also Steve, uh, is trying to uh, flirt with and get to know a, a girl in a bar, uh, but she does not speak English. She, she uh, speaks uh, um, Hebrew. She's Israeli. And um, he gets a translator, but the translator has to uh, step away for a minute and the two of them keep trying to communicate. And they go through this scene um, twice in the episode, once where she's speaking uh, uh, Hebrew and he's speaking English. And then another uh, where they do the exact same thing, but he's speaking uh, Italian and she's speaking English. So the, the viewer, English speaking viewer, gets to see both perspectives. And um, the joke that we we hold to this day as a sort of metaphor that, that is a, a secret between us is whenever we toast, we toast saying Shadaim. Because uh, in that in that episode, there's a great joke where um, they get confused. He thinks that he's asking he, he's trying to ask her what her name is and he's pointing to her. And she thinks he's pointing at her tits and she uh, uh, goes, oh, these these are called breasts. But in in Hebrew, breasts is the word Shadaim. And he turns around and goes, Shadaim, like thinking her name is Shadaim. <laughs> and in the reversed you know, uh, version, you see him going breasts to his friends and they go in response, breasts. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a very <laughs> awesome, funny, hysterical joke. And now every time when me and my friends are toasting, you know, instead of cheers or any other kind of uh, cheers, we say, Shadaim, 
Oh, that that's great. Um, and, and you know what, that really goes to show like how narrow this can be too. narrow in that I wouldn't know what that meant. I would have just thought that you were making a good toast, right? That it was, um, you know, another language or something like that, but I wouldn't know what it meant, but it would be this inside joke. And it would be even funnier for you guys if I was hanging around with you and you knew I didn't know the joke and I ended up just saying it with you. Right. And you're like, ha, ha, look what we got her to say. Right. Um, so that's, yeah. that's really fun. That's great. Um, so Darmok, what is it that you love about Darmok and, and the way that they speak? Because I know that this, this speaks to you and you, you've often wanted to, to use this kind of phrasing in, in communication here on Clubhouse. Yeah, so it, it is one of my favorite episodes of all time and um, of, of Star Trek. And the reason is I, I like that it's quirky and that it's it's investigating this idea of a, of a language being stuck because it's all metaphor. And I've had a lot of time I've thought about it and wondered like, wait, is this realistic? No, is it playful? Is it is it something that they really thought through? And I really find that the writers of that episode, they did think it through very well. They clearly seem to have gotten some like linguistics to um, linguists to help them with their research and fully like developing and understanding it. It's not as though they developed a full language, but they really had the the sort of philosophy of language uh characteristics down and concise throughout the whole length or th throughout the whole episode and so i've been thinking for a long while what what is the what is a realistic way in which a species might actually adapt this and i think well one of the best benefits or one of the one of the features which we all keep struggling with when it comes to metaphors like this the secret languages and um things that are just referenced from our personal history is we don't get it. If we're not in the group, we don't get it. We don't know what those words are. And that is especially useful if you are trying to send secret messages. So I imagine the Tamarians have a history. Like if we were to really write this out and, and parse it out, they must have a history where warfare was incredibly uh, high and many tensions were high amongst their people. Um, and to, to a point where they needed to be the most, they, they were adapted to becoming the best spies that they could be, which meant that every relationship with, with each other was a very personal one and very quickly went from, well, you could use coded language, but then you also could use language that is still coded, but it's coded with your knowledge of the person. And it, it'd be like similar to like, um, you know, it, you ever see these these uh, time travel uh, things where uh, shows and movies where you go back in time and, you know, your your younger self is skeptical. Right? Like if you're really me, then prove it. And they prove it by saying something that they know about their history together. Right. That they, that they both went through. Same thing. You go for like a, a number of, you know, these kinds of uh, uh, claims. Um, but I find it really interesting that it really does on its own without any kind of miracles to explain it, it on its own is very utilitous to utilize your knowledge of someone and, and your history with someone 
as the way in which you you try to speak to each other. And I just also imagine that while maybe in some communal way, there was a group that made this this perfect, uh, they, they survived and they thrived in, in this warfare by having this great um, encryption that they, they had with their language. They might have also just won that war and settled much more peacefully, but then were so darn used to it, so so hunkered down in that secret historical language that they forgot what the original words meant. Right. Wow. That's, that's incredible. T, what do you think? Well, first and foremost, I think that that is a beautiful assessment of the language because I think it is a very um, warlike language. And I love the idea of them having forgotten their culture and that's why they or forgotten their sort of historical culture and embraced their, well, it's more interesting, isn't it? Forgotten their synthetic culture and embraced their historical culture um, in this, in this way of just like, you know, we, we don't really need the, the, the makeup words to, to reference these things. We can sort of reference them directly and that's sufficient for communication. And, it it it, it to, to me it beautifully illustrates the the nature of storytelling and how we use these things to tell a a story and and, and you know like like Ryan pointed out earlier about the beginning the opening speech my favorite part was the the end in which Picard um you know he said Caleb his uh, his army, Shaka, when the walls fell. And I understood what he said, not because I, I knew, you know, what, what the individual words mean, but I knew what it meant when you put them together in that order. And even though I was sort of using, you know, English, as it were, sort of like, you know, names that were not necessarily English sounding, I mean, sort of English sounding, but um, a, a little culturally, you know, inclined, but but the, the rest of the words were still English, even though I wasn't using them to mean their literal, their literal meaning, I had been taught a new language. And, and I loved that. I loved going around, you know, the next week talking to my dad, Chaco, when the walls fell, which means failure you know, or, or defeat or something like that. So I think that this was for, for me, I, I love this idea of putting this cultural history and, and spin on why they have um, this, this language and why this language is, is now part of their sort of forgotten past. That's really awesome, Steve. Yeah, really. I, I, I love that. I love how deeply you've thought about that. This is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club on Clubhouse and our mailing list at StarTrekSundays.com. Today we are discussing the evolution of language in Say What? Before we move on to Sumerian Snare, T, can you tell us what we have coming up for next week on Star Trek Sundays? Definitely. On January 29th, we have the Criteria for Sentience, 
which should be very interesting. We're going back to the beginning with the Changeling, um, in which in the original series, the Enterprise finds an ancient interstellar probe from Earth missing for 265 years, which has somehow mutated into a powerful and intelligent machine, ster machine sterilizing entire populations that do not fit its standards of perfection. Uh, I think the quote is, ugly bags of mostly water, um, followed by the measure of a man in which Picard must prove that Data is legally a sentient being with rights and freedoms under Federation law where trans when transfer orders demand Data's reassignment for study and disassembly. So two absolutely like uh, goalpost uh, episodes here. These things are, you know, first of all, Nomad, as it's sort of colloquially called, um, it was one of the original sci-fi greats that was just, you know, crowed about as a sci-fi story. And then Measure of a Man, I think, was, in my mind, easily the most philosophically deep um episode in in all of star trek right up there with the one where um q quinn comes back and, or comes and uh contemplates what it means to be allowed to to die and so i'm really looking forward to these and uh just some amazing episodes yeah these are these are great I, i'm feeling a theme coming on of um humanity transformation um values um this is this is going to be a great season so thank you for that uh curation so let's get into samaritan snare can you provide a summary of the episode to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about and then i have a question for you and the crew definitely samaritan snare uh, the Next Generation, Season 2, Episode 17, first aired on the 15th of May, 1989. In this episode, the Paclids tricked the, clue, the crew of the USS Enterprise into helping them with their ship by pretending to have advanced technology, when in reality, they are not as intelligent as they appear. I chose this episode because it explores the idea that appearances of language can be deceiving and how easy it is to be misled. It also touches on themes of exploitation and manipulation and how language plays a role. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that summary. Um, this episode, I'm going to just mention a couple of things that we can maybe get into later, but um, we did talk about this at the uh, watch party yesterday and um, the, our question will lead into um, a few other things. And I want to know everybody's thoughts on, on the episode as well as the answer to the question. But this episode was interesting to me in several ways. One way in which we didn't really get into yesterday was Riker's apparent loss of control. I say apparent because he may have been expressing himself in a way that he thought was intimidating to the Paclids, but it clearly wasn't working. And yet he continued to yell. Like it was, I was blown away at this. So I suspect it wasn't him trying to be intimidating. 
but him just losing his shit because he screwed up by sending Jordy over to the other ship without having consulted Troy. Picard always has Troy by his side and asks what she thinks about new beings that they encounter. And Riker didn't do this. And so how I interpreted those scenes was he was just like, ah, panicked, he's got to fix this because he was just yelling. I just didn't think that he was carrying himself in a leader way. So maybe we can get into that later. And then even after that, a little side note was if we have time uh, after the crew participates, perhaps we can discuss the language between Picard and Wesley in the shuttlecraft, specifically Wesley's passive aggressive behavior. <laughs> and I know Charlotte and I agreed on some of this, but we don't have to get into that right now. <laughs> but I wanted to put those out there, uh, kind of just to get them off my chest too. But in Samaritan Snare, the relative sophistication of the Enterprise crew's language allows them to speak in a code that the Paclids didn't understand. This is when they were trying to um, rescue Geordi. T, do you have a code you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? Yeah, I do. Whenever I'm speaking to my, and I used to do this way too much at work, um, but whenever I was speaking to my um, programmer friends, we could speak in a programming language and our manager friends, as they were, would not be able to follow along with what we're talking about. And this could be very sophisticated. It could actually be, you know, based on deep knowledge and deep understanding of like, you know, prior events and just linking things together in the right way. So many years ago, I remember we used to do this all the time. My friend um, Chad and I used to go to the movies after work on occasion because he wanted to see the latest, you know, movie and we went and saw, and this is how we went and saw Equilibrium. And I remember, um, you know, we wanted to, go but not include certain people because they just you know weren't going to be into the movie and we didn't want to like make a big thing out of the fact that we were going um and so we sort of needed to speak in code and chad and i worked on a game called syndome and syndome had um rats that him and i had worked on and rats had uh, been coded to be parented to the critter object. And so when I said to Chad, the, uh, the parent of the rat, he knew that that would be the critter object. And that would mean that we were going to the criterion down the street after work. And he would put that together in his head. And, you know, we could just speak in like object references, right? Just, you know, talk about the parents of things or the, you know, uh, you know, or just even like you literally use object numbers. We would like, you know, pass around addresses that we had memorized because we were so used to, um, you know, talking in this language of just literally a string of numbers. And like we would say, you know, number, number three, three, four, and they would, he would know what that was. So that's actually a, a fairly common thing to do in amongst coders. Oh, that's great. You're using code as a code. <laughs> yes, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, 
That's that's fantastic. Um, okay, let's see what the crew has to say about this, and then we'll maybe get into talking about the episode uh, in general because I think it's it's kind of funny. There's lots of layers to this for sure, way more than I just vented about too. So, Charlotte, do you have a code you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> again, about my wife, Marianne, and when I was serving on active duty, um, we had uh, watches um, that were uh, beepers, basically. I can't remember what, what company they were, but um, anyway, so, so there was time, but we could send digital messages to each other. And one thing we couldn't do was we couldn't talk to each other on the phone or communicate any other way other than being in person for, for my concerns about um, being uh, caught in, in, in on active duty for being gay. And, and so we started sending these various um, numbers and we would change our numeric sequence, but one that, that, that we still use today, if we're in a crowd of, of people or something, I'll, I'll, I'll put up one finger and that means that, that you're the best, you know, number one. Um, sevens. Um, if she can't hear me, I, you know, I'll put up seven fingers just to say that I love her. And th that's a code that's been around for 30 years. So it's still very touching today. And that's my share. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for sharing something so intimate. It's, that's really beautiful. And it's always sad and angering that you had to use those codes in the past. And yet it's sort of beautiful that you've been able to continue those. So I really appreciate that contribution. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it, it, um, it, it really um, uh, brought this beautiful thing into our world at, at a very challenging time and something that's so endearing still today and obviously very touching. So thank you for the opportunity to share. Thanks. Gala. Let's find out about your codes. Do you have a code you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? So um, I have an old family code. Um, I mean, it's not that old. Uh, my great grandfather, whom I never met, um, had a store. Uh, I think it may have been a hardware store or something. Um, and my dad worked in it. And he had a a code for numbers. So he would um, put, it, you know, this was back in the day when, um, you know, things were not necessarily what they were priced. Um, so Papa Sid would put um, the prices in his code on the, on the, um, on the merchandise. So he would know what it was. So he could like, you know, mark up or mark down, depending on who, who was buying. Um, and it was, the code was Perth Amboy. Perth Amboy is a town in, is the town in New Jersey where he lived and it's 10 letters. So P was one, E was two, R was three, etc., And, you know, H was zero. Um, so I still use the Perth Amboy code, um, with, with my siblings sometimes. Oh, very interesting. Oh, that's, that's great. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, we'll be listening out for that now. <laughs> oh, no. 
Um, so, hey, Ryan, um, do you have a code you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? No, I'm I'm rude. I'll just say the rude things. I'll just say the 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 quiet part out loud and offend people. Um, but I, I did want to touch. I'll just be blunt. I'll just be a hammer about things and break things. Um, but uh, you, you did say something earlier that, that I wanted to touch upon, which is Commander Riker's um, sort of shooting from the hip, his, his propensity for violence, which is showcased in both of the episodes that we're talking about today. Um, in, in the first episode, he's literally the issue of, of why we need to communicate because otherwise someone like commander Riker will start a war. Um, and he'll feel justified and same with trying to intimidate a species that is not, not able to be intimidated by just speaking louder. And this is something that, uh, that commander Riker does often. He will misinterpret or he'll, he'll, misread the situation and instead of saying let me take a step back and and assess what's really happening he just takes whatever assumption he has and goes head first which is very different than what Picard does in a lot of ways Commander Riker is the contemporary interpretation of Captain Kirk where you, you need that you need to showcase the cowboy so that someone like Picard like you see the value in it. Um, Picard is, is very measured and, and is always holding back um, quite a bit. Uh, but it's his ability to have restraint, which makes him a phenomenal leader. And it's the reason why Commander Riker is Commander Riker for most of his career and not Captain Riker. Um, his his uh, desire to jump in head first is a problem. And it's it's something that does them a disservice, and I think does the Federation a disservice. Excellent points. Excellent points. Um, it's thank you so much for pointing out that Captain Picard has restraint and that he's measured, because I think in real life, people like that are seen as either not caring or not interested, or that they don't have reactions when in fact they have reactions they just have more control over how they express themselves with respect to those reactions and and i think that's really important because it it just shows a different personality maybe some training you know some emotional intelligence in some way so um i really appreciate you pointing that out because i i think we know that captain picard is bothered by many things he just thinks before he reacts and and that's really important so thank you for saying that i'd like to add to that please i grew up with the perception that captain picard was a bit gruff like season one captain picard of the next generation and that riker was the more intelligent one the more virile the more you know leadership capable and, and you know he was just coming up through the captain right it was just not yet his time yet and in later reflection in life 
I realized that I had those roles wrong. I had them exactly wrong. It was in fact, Captain Picard season three, season five, season six, season seven, that was the strong leader, not the season one Captain Picard, but the season, season six Captain Picard, who was the strong leader. And Riker was a bumbling idiot in many, many ways. He passed up opportunity after opportunity for the wrong reasons. He treated women poorly. He was simply a bad role model in, in many, many ways. And looking back, it's interesting to see sort of how my, how my perception changed, you know? And I see that Charlotte raised her hand. I, want, I don't know if you want to say something or add to that, Charlotte. Well, that's, you just mentioned um, that that's, you know, that's how uh, um, leaders in, in the military um, appearing to be non-emotional or whatever, but some of the best people that I ever worked for were the, the commanding officers that were very Picard-esque. And um, and that seemed, you know that le those leadership qualities also were something that I, I I recognized from my own childhood growing up. The best teachers were were very similar to to Picard, and um, so yeah, I agree with you. That you might have um, a, an executive officer that is is like number one. However they they don't tend to earn the respect of their crew as as Picard uh, does over and over again. Yeah, um, I'm just going to share something. Uh, when I was growing up in my early career, I would look at women in managerial and, and C-suite roles, and I would see them as being emotionless. And I interpreted that as me having to get rid of my emotions. And that did me a disservice because as I got, as I sort of got promoted and got closer to those roles and got to know those women, um, I, I would say, well, how do you not care about this? And they go, what do you mean? I care about it a great deal. And I go, what? And they're like, yeah, you don't have to know about that. It's not everybody's business how I react and, and stuff like that. And I learned that these women didn't not care. Like they, it wasn't that they were void of reaction. It was just they had control of the reaction. They were measured in order to be able to not react with emotion so that they could decide what the best move was for everybody. So they had the space. They had this emotional margin between what was happening and how they were going to respond to it in order to think. So they weren't like, you know, uh, a tap on the knee and a kick. They were thinking about it and taking that space. And for that space, you need to have this this calm demeanor. And over time, I was able to really recognize that and and do work on myself in order to stay with my emotions, to still have those emotions, but not necessarily let them control me. 
or at least not, not that let them control my actions. And so I really love this conversation and, and I thank you, Ryan, for bringing it up. Babs, did you want to answer the last question or did you want to talk about this one? Um, I was actually agreeing with you, Victoria, in the regard of like holding on to your emotions, you know, during, you know, um, especially in the workplace. Um, when I worked in the operating room, I, um, well, to answer the main question, I'll just, I'll, we always talk in code in the OR, right? So in the hospital, we always talk in code, like, you know, code white could mean one thing, code blue, obviously patients not breathing, things like that. So um, it's very, very commonplace in healthcare to use code. And one of my favorites was uh, code brown. Um, I think you can pick up what I'm putting down. Um, Obviously, when you go under surgery, uh, your muscles relax um, because, and that's why they partially tell you don't eat or drink the night before um, because your muscles relax and there is the potential for you to um, have an accident in the OR. So um, those were always the worst codes to get. Those were always the most atrocious codes to get. But um, nonetheless, we used them a lot in healthcare. But going back to what you were saying, holding on to emotion in the workplace. Um, during my time in the OR, I had two patients that had died um, and one of them was unexpected. One of them was 95 and uh, their family even said, we said goodbye in pre-op, which was a little weird, but I digress. The other patient was very unexpected, 50s, um, and he ended up bleeding out internally. And um, it was a very profound experience um, and having to maintain your emotion during something so profound, you know, watching somebody that you don't even necessarily know from Adam, you know, just passing in such a horrific manner, you know, it was, it was traumatizing. Um, but it was also something that I had to realize this is part of my job. I can't, you know, get upset. You know, I can't be, you know, you know, in, I can't get depressed about this because this is life. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy working in healthcare where I have to, you know, mm -hmm. I have to care for these people, but I also have to maintain a certain distance so that I don't become too attached. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why when I was younger, I absolutely couldn't go into um, healthcare. I had always thought, oh, I'll, I want to work at a vet office. <laughs> There's no way I could do that. That I don't even know how I thought about that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I and, and kudos to you for being able to do it. Like, thumbs up to our healthcare workers for sure. Well, thank you. Appreciate you. Um, so, Oh, Ryan, did you? Yeah, I just, I just want to finish a thought really quick. Oh, um, sure, please. Well, I've been listening to everybody. I, I realize that that Commander Riker is your pal. He's a, he's a buddy. Captain Picard is not your friend. He's your captain. There's a, there's a tonal shift, right, where Captain Picard is not interested in, 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 in being the everyday comfort, where Commander Riker does very much care about the the memification of himself he has a meme that he wants to maintain about who commander Riker is he's kind of a cad he's kind of a woman's a ladies guy you know uh, he's 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 shoot first talk about it later um and in some respects he's proud of of these flaws and uh, I understand why Captain Picard keeps him around, right? Because you need the impulsive, 
you need the impulsive uh, person who's going to break things from time to time to balance things out, to show you what not to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I, I love talking about Picard and Riker together and, and the differences and, and what the writers were doing. They were entertaining us for sure. And then they were talking about language for sure. And, and then you get these examples of these other things. The layers of Star Trek are just endless, absolutely endless. Um, Barsha, let's go to you. I'm interested. Do you have a code you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? You know, I probably do, but I, I couldn't. I was trying to think of one the whole time. Um, it's more, I think, body language. Like if I'm at a party and I got to go like right now, <laughs> I will look at Kim in a certain way and Kim will know immediately. But I did think of one and I guess it's my... I love my father. He passed away 13 years ago, but he used to say something to me. So I used to be, when I was, when I was, uh, sorry, I keep bringing up these family codes, but this is what it was. When um, I used to drive, I used to, he would say, you're very heavy on your foot, <laughs> which means I was speeding all the time. And my father had this very strange thing where he would, when we were driving long distances, he would read every sign backwards. I don't know what he was doing. We all laughed at it. But every time I left and he knew where I was going, this is way back, he'd say, Deeps Timolite Fifth. And I'd say, what? <laughs> and he knew, he knew after I figured out what it was, he'd always say, Deeps Timolite Fifth. And it was speed limit 50 backwards. And everybody just thought it was this thing he said to me, but he was, <laughs> he was telling me, don't speed. And it's so weird that I thought of that because my father's been gone for so long, but I miss him so much. Anyway, I deeps Tim will eat fifth. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, that is so sweet. Oh, ab that that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, you know, you brought up body language and it was one of the things I made a note of as well. Because I think those can be coded or, or we use them together. And uh, yeah, I don't often indulge and answer the question, but I'm going to do it right now because I was reminded of um, this. And, and guys, the guys here probably know this. A lot of other guys don't, but and the women do too. And, it, and if, if a woman doesn't know this, well, here's the PSA. Women who are strangers often communicate with each other in public spaces, like bars particularly, in order to protect each other from men who are exhibiting predatory behavior. And it's not a specific code necessarily, but it's a combination of verbal and body language that tells the stranger that we are pretending to be good friends to give you space from this person. So just go along with it until we can assess the situation. And you go up and, and I, I've done it myself and I pick like a nickname. Hey, kitty. So that if the guy already knows her name or something, we can say it's a nickname. And, um, and, and, you know, you, it's this look of, Hey, I'm a stranger. And he goes, don't you remember me? We used to work together 10 years ago or whatever. Right. And it's like, Oh yeah. And if they really just aren't getting it, well, you know, maybe they're interested in the guy or they just don't know. But quite often, if you see somebody with you know, with a person and there's a lot of red flags going on, women will do this to each other. I've had women do it to me. And, um, and 
so yeah, I guess it would be weird if you didn't know that people did this and you have a stranger come up to you, but maybe you've already got the heebie-jeebies from the guy and and then you, you catch what's going on. But um, that's a code that isn't even between people who know each other. It's not even a really agreed upon code, but, um, but I've seen it in practice and I think it's great. So um, yeah, body language counts for sure. Uh, thank you, Barsha. Uh, welcome to the stage also, Chill, and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Just a little update. We are on our second episode. We were watching uh, Darmok yesterday, as well as Samaritan Snare. And that's the question that prompted, or that's the episode that prompted this question. Because in Samaritan Snare, the relative sophistication of the enterprise's Enterprise crew's language allows them to speak in a code that the Paclids didn't understand. So you don't have to have seen the episode, but you can answer the question. Do you have a code that you use to openly communicate while sending covert messages? I mean, I think, well, first of all, largely no, like in normal, you know, whatever, regular interactions and social situations with other people, I would say no. Um, but given my... <clears throat> you know, given my whatever, what I do for a living, um, I've always been in a kind of, when I'm in comedy circles, but it's simply, there's always been a code that, you know, is a kind of like range of like deadpan expression as a mode of communication where no one is saying anything that they actually, um, where, they're, where they're saying whatever, they're, they're sending covert messages you know, usually that message is this is funny or this is ironic or something, but they're, you know, but then we're expressing it in a different way, right? So the 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 clearest example of that is like when you're inside a bit, like, you know, a comedy bit or improvisational bit with your friends, and then it just goes on for so long. And they often do, like there's a rule, like it's funny and you keep doing it and then it's not funny. And then eventually it's funny again because you just do it for so long. So then if there are people outside or if they came into the bit late or there's people outside that kind of, you know, they're not in the kind of comedy bit at that moment, it would seem totally bizarre and alien because they don't know what the conversation is, what the topic is, what the point of view on the topic is, because you're in, we're all inside some crazy deadpan bit and often, not oftentimes, but if I find myself in that situation where someone's outside it, I'll go, oh, sorry, stop everybody. We're in a bit right now. <laughs> like we're doing a bit, so nothing you've heard, uh, you need to, you know, whatever, like absorb in any kind of literal way because we're just being insane people. So that would be the only context. <laughs> well, um, given some of the conversations that we had yesterday where when we were talking about Darmok and metaphors, um, we were talking about when people are around people who are talking in metaphors or code and some of the other people don't get it. Right, and they feel like they're missing out. Um, on on behalf of those people, I thank you for explaining that to the other people around you, because I think that that matters to people. We've put out the questions to everybody and and answered those questions. Um, maybe we can dig in a little bit to Samaritan Snare because we haven't actually talked uh, too much about that episode. Also, Chill, do you know that episode? Are you a fan of Star Trek? No, I mean, not that I'm not a fan, but I'm actually just a fan of you guys. I've never been someone who, I haven't watched Star Trek in forever. Uh, and when I did, I was never really a Trekkie. Like I used to watch episodes in college with a group on Sunday night. And, but that is the extent to, of my knowledge. So I'm actually, I wouldn't even call myself a Star Trek newbie. I'm just like completely outside the Star Trek universe in terms of my knowledge. So I, I should eventually jump into that. 
um, because it's a massive gap in my, you know, kind of, you know, knowledge of an important part of sci-fi television and movies in cinematic history, but um, I haven't at all. So I know I just came in there because I just love you guys. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. The interesting thing is, uh, I'll just, uh, most of the people here know this, but I'm also like you, like I watched Star Trek Next Generation as it was coming out and was a big fan, but I didn't know any Trekkies. So it was the thing I did on my own. I couldn't even really talk about it. Most recently, I told a friend of mine who I used to go bar hopping with back in those days that I was doing a Star Trek uh, podcast and she laughed. She's like, oh my God, you loved it back then. But I, I hadn't watched any other series after that, but I loved the philosophy and it always made me think, and I loved the stories more than the sci-fi. So when we had this opportunity and T and I met here on Clubhouse to talk about the these philosophical themes that are presented in Star Trek, it really got me back into it. And I've got to say, I love watching this show. And I love having learned through this podcast how to watch movies and TV with intention right? Like when you know that there are a couple of themes presented in some of these shows, and then you go in looking at the show that way, it just gives this absolutely new experience. And I owe people a blog post on the intentional watch as well. So I'm going to put that out there as a, um, a way of being accountable to everybody. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's amazing. So please, if you're around on Saturday afternoons, we do a watch party the day be before the show to watch together. And, and that's always lots of fun. So thank you, everybody, for answering the questions. Let's loosen it up a little bit here. And I'll just ask if anybody wants to talk about anything else they saw in Samaritan Snare. Um, and if they wanted to jump off on what Ryan was talking about, or if there was something else in that episode that sparked a question to you or, or that you noticed that you wanted to discuss. So I'll just watch the stage for hands up or unmiking, however you want to do that. Ryan? Yeah. So anyone who's a parent can relate to this episode where you're, you're being outwitted by a foe that knows so much less than you do. Um, and one of the things that toddlers start doing early on in their development is they learn how to manipulate you to get what they want. And the same way that this alien race would manipulate others to get what they want. So they, they present themselves as helpless um, and they present themselves as, as, as not understanding or stupid. And, and they are, but there's a genius in that, that what they're doing is they're looking for technology. They're looking to up their game and they know that people will give it to them if they act a certain way, if they act like children, right? That's, that's that's how children learn how to manipulate because it works um they get what they want and this alien race for the most part gets what it wants until they're outwitted by people who are actually significantly smarter but you don't have to be smart to get what you want you can go pretty far just by being manipulative and uh this episode is a really good showcase of that and again every parent knows this feeling where your baby uh, starts to cry in a certain tone and you go oh that's a fake cry and then you 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 redirect them and you realize yeah it was a fake cry um 
But for a lot of people who don't know any better, that fake cry is going to work. And so, yeah. Well, that's that's excellent. It it answers a, a secondary question I have, which was when um, I had said that the pack lids sound unsophisticated and, and childlike, but are able to steal resources because those with whom they come in contact end up underestimating them. And then the question was, have you ever under or overestimated someone's comprehension because of their speech or language? And we do that with kids all the time. And kids know it too. I love YouTube videos <laughs> where a kid, not necessarily a toddler, but you know, an elementary school kid is trying to convince their parent of something. And there was one where there was a little girl and she cut her hair quite badly. And this was years ago. And the mom says, what have you done? And the the girl is so mature. She goes, it's okay. It's okay. I'm a real person. I'm a real person. It'll grow back. And it's clear that she's cut her Barbie dolls before and the hair hasn't grown back because she keeps trying to convince the mom and keep the mom calm. It's okay. My hair will grow back. And she goes, well, why did you do it? And she goes, it was extra. And it just, it's so funny, but watching this kid think that she she's able to calm down this adult by mimicking the adult's behavior. It's just, I can't get enough of this one tiny video, right? So um, anyway, thank you for that, Ryan. That was great. Anybody else have any thoughts? T? These episodes in, in particular, uh, the pack lids, uh, they come back in... <laughs> lower decks and, and they're really great characters because they are so unsophisticated i think that we like things that make us go is definitely repeated more often than darmok and jalad at tanagra at least in my households and so i think that uh, you know f for me these these just represent uh cultural icons they're 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 goalposts in in the star trek franchise and i just i love them and i love the the shares the crew has had so far yeah they they blend it, well it blends in like we were talking about metaphors are basically coded language in some way um especially if somebody doesn't understand the metaphor right as as um steve was saying earlier about um uh about about people not not understanding if you don't know the history then it it's garbledly good and one of my favorites that i use and it, it could be a metaphor or it can be a code is from the simpsons and so mine is not so uh personal with family and stuff almost anybody uh especially in the english-speaking world i guess would understand it so so it's not sophisticated but it, it clearly gets to the point and, and that's when Homer receives a diploma of sorts and he hangs it on the wall and dances around while the diploma is on fire. <laughs> and he's dancing around singing, uh, I am so smart, S-M-R-T, <laughs> and spelling smart incorrectly. Uh, and Homer singing the phrase with the misspelling is often used as a way for me to admit when I've screwed up. And so if I've done something, whether I'm with my husband or, or somebody else, it's a way of saying, oh, look at me, I'm an idiot, but it, I'm saying it with humor instead of reprimanding myself. And so being able to use that Homer reference, oh, I am so smart, S-M-R-T, and other people will know that as well. So sometimes they can be much wider. What were you going to yeah, say? Yeah, I, I think that the, the Simpsons are um, 
especially famous for introducing new words that way into the sort of English vernacular. Um, for example, I very, very clearly remember the episode in which the mayor was talking about um, how something he was doing is going to um, embiggen the town of Springfield or something. And, and Lisa, you know, turns to Homer and says, you know, that's not a word. And, and Homer looks at her and says, what are you talking about? Embiggened is a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely brilliant because after that, and you can find this on many, you know, urban dictionaries, as it were, cromulent came to mean the, a word, you know, saying that a word is cromulent means that it is defined through its usage, right? Not, not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have a definition beyond, you know, just how it's obviously used in this context. And so embiggened is a perfectly cromulent word because you know exactly what he's trying to say by using that word. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, Io, welcome to the stage. We, no um, we, we, we missed you, um, uh, but thank you for coming in. We were talking about Darmok uh, and the, the language. Yeah. That's right. As, as well as the uh, Samaritan snare. Um, so do you have a favorite oh, yeah. metaphor or clever twist of speech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you say? Yeah, so... Uh... Being a Star Trek fan, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, Shaka, when the walls fell. So for me, Shaka is like a negative thing that like, so like in at university, we watch like Star Trek with like uh, our classmates and, you know, all, all sorts of uh, psychedelic other experiences uh, of that nature. And it created this kind of spiritual space for a lot of these Star Trek stories and one of them is this word shaka. So when I traveled to Hawaii to find out that shaka was like an actual emoji, which is like your pinky finger and your thumb pointed out, and it means something like positive. And for me, it was like coming to an alien planet. So it was like uh, an error in my understanding of language as a result of a story from Star Trek about languages and analogies and their failure in societies and so it was like this really really weird meta experience but shaka when the walls fell is like something that like my wife and i say to each other we'll just say shaka and and nobody knows what the hell we're saying but to us it means that there was something that was negative or there was a loss and it requires a moment of reflection and so in the in the spirit of Star Trek. So that's kind of my favorite thing. But in terms of other phrases that are like triggers that I use maybe to uh, uh, overcome perhaps uh, other limitations, I'm always reminded of The Simpsons with Lisa needs braces, dental plan. So whenever I hear two things in coincidence with one another, I'm like, hmm, is there a connection? So, uh, but that's all for me for now. Thanks. Thanks, Io. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you going in and saying that that um, you use that term to indicate time for reflection. I think I need to go back and watch this episode later today because I feel like I felt really teary, like my face got hot and I felt like, uh, you know, moisture in my sinuses and in my eyes welling up when we were watching this show and, and when Picard was talking. 
uh, the, to the Temerians later at the end. And, um, and I think I was holding back because of course we were all watching it. And I think I just needed to watch this by, by myself and have a good cry because it was just, it was really, um, it was really deep. So yeah, thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm going to take some time for reflection on Star Trek today really appreciate it thank you everybody for your contributions we're going to wrap up now t did you have anything to add i'm just so excited to be on the current track that we're on because i agree with victoria that i'm feeling a theme coming on we sort of touched on transhumanism in the last episode but i think there's there's more work to do there and i think that we can bring back that theme and and focus on it more in a different way um, and this was great because we really did get to talk about the way in which language evolves as a as a cultural phenomenon. And I, I just you know I want to highlight the way that Steve put that put that together with a with a backstory for for them. But mostly, I just want to say thank you to the crew who have just been amazing with all of this. Um, and of course, next week's um, focus mm -hmm. on the criteria for sentience I, I really do hope that we can bring a a really good you know discussion regarding that and do talk about some of the philosophy of mind um and talk about the um the challenges that that uh we're, we're sort of faced here as we show um the the first sort of inception of nomad and then you know sort of the later more benign inception of data um in, as we talk about what it means to actually be sentient and, you know, what follows from that. So I'm just so excited for next week. And thank you for this week, guys, because this, you know, this is my church and I love it. And I love you guys. And you're all amazing. Yeah, ab absolutely. Ditto on, on all of that. And uh, T does the curation of these episodes. And I just can't thank you enough for, for what you choose and, and how you put them together. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, this was great. Appreciate the crew, all of your contributions. You always make me think about things that I haven't thought about, even in the watch party, even when I talk to, to T about it right before the show. And then you come and you drop the mic on me every single time. So I really appreciate you. This has been Star Trek Sundays, and we've been talking about the evolution of language in Say What? And we hope to see you next week when we talk about the criteria for sentience. Thank you again, and I hope you all have a great afternoon. Ciao. Live long and prosper.